The Guardian. Hello, I'm Matt Wells. Welcome to a very special edition of Media Talk dedicated to, well, what else? The phone hacking scandal that's rocked the press, the police and parliament to its very news core. I would just like to say one sentence. This is the most humble day of my life. I don't know anyone in their right mind who would authorise, no sanction, approval, anyone listening to the voicemails of Millie Dowler in those circumstances. If it turns out Andy Coulson knew about the hacking at the News of the World, he will not only have lied to me, but he would have lied to the police, to a select committee, to the Press Complaints Commission, and, of course, perjured himself in a court of law. More to the point, if that comes to the pass, he could also expect to face severe criminal charges. We're recording the show in front of a live audience here at The Guardian's King's Place HQ. In the next hour or so, we'll look back on another extraordinary week in which Rupert Murdoch was forced to eat humble pie. James Murdoch denied knowledge of pretty much everything rotten going on at News International. And David Cameron tried once again to shake off the spectre of Andy Coulson. Now, if that wasn't enough to dominate the headlines, two of Murdoch's most senior aides, Les Hinton and Rebecca Brooks, have resigned. The country's two top cops have handed in their notice, and one of the original whistleblowers at the News of the World was found dead in his home. If you were pitching this to a Hollywood studio, they'd tell you it was too far-fetched. So how to make sense of it all? Well, fortunately, we have the main players in the drama as it continues to play out. Uh, Alan Rusperger is The Guardian's editor-in-chief. Nick Davis is our special reporter who's been in the driving seat behind the phone-hacking story. Jonathan Friedland is a Guardian columnist. And Jane Martinson is a former editor of Media Guardian. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, your panel. Make it absolutely clear. Has everyone been through our our rigid security checks? No shaving foam, no paper plates. Only uh, the only flannelling will be going on, but it will be our panel. Uh, I want to start. um, I want to start with 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 you, Nick. Um, I mean, it's been an extraordinary story. You were on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and you were asked if you could imagine how it could have come to this. It's been even more cataclysmic since then. Why has it all happened? Why is it all collapsing so quickly? Uh, it's hard to describe or explain. I, I would say there's a combination of two things at work, isn't there? One is the sheer emotional power of the Millie Dowler story. And we knew when we published it that it was powerful. And I said to Alan before we ran it, this is the most powerful hacking story so far. But I didn't understand quite how powerful. I never foresaw its destructive force. So you have that, this great emotional spasm. But the other factor that's in there, I think, is the late, latent anger with the Murdoch organisation. That The parallel I keep thinking of, it's like having a bully in the playground. And everybody's scared of the bully and nobody quite dares to stand up. And it gets to the point, which has been the case with the Murdoch organisation, that the bully doesn't have to tell people what to do. They spontaneously do what they think will please him and tiptoe around him. But suddenly there were enough people who were angry because of the Millie Dowler factor that they all started to stand up and saw each other's courage and found their own, and therefore there was enough opposition to defy him. It's, it's something to do with that. It's the latent hostility to Murdoch breaking through. Alan, Alan did you... Uh, I mean, you've, you've been... With Guardian's been pursuing the story for a, a very long time. It, it is extraordinary how, how such an enormous edifice as the Murdoch Empire does seem to be crumbling. No, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, none, none of us uh, could have seen this happening. I mean, when, when Nick, Nick and I discussed the, the Gordon Taylor story, the story of how James Murdoch 
um, signed the cheque in order to conceal this settlement. This was the first story. Which, which showed, so it's back in exactly two years ago, July 2009. Uh, and, you know, the, the point that they, the, the, the reason they signed such a large cheque was because it revealed that the loan Apple theory was wrong. Um, so we do, I mean, we both knew at that point that this, this was going to end badly for, for, <laughs> for people within uh, news organisations, within uh, News International. Um, so you but, could, maybe but, could have anticipated yeah. resignations, perhaps. And, and we, know, within, within hours, there was going to be, the, the cover-up had started, and within a week, it was obvious that they just weren't going to... So we, we sort of dug in, and we knew it was going to be a long... But, I mean, it had no, no conception that it was going to end up like this. Jonathan, you write thrillers in your spare time, don't you? Um, do you think this, I mean, this sounds, it's almost like, well, I was going to say, it was not quite like one of your plots. It's so extraordinary. Could you come up with a plot like this? Well, the truth is I'm actually meant to be writing a thriller under this my alter ego, Sam Bourne, at the moment. And I've broken away from it because um, of this story. And the truth is I don't think you would ever dare come up with a storyline like this. You would be accused of just going over the top. This would be excessive. They would say, the editor would say to you, you can have one of the policemen resigning, but you can't have both, <laughs> because obviously once the top ones or the other, you can have, okay, you can have the chief executive of News International, but you can't have Les Hinton as well. And then in the same uh, day, the same day <laughs> that's the other thing, you're, you know, your pacing's all wrong. You've got these three resignations in a weekend in that way. And you also have, you know, normally what would happen, I think, in a, if you were constructing this as a novel, you would say, here's a conspiracy which, or a story which appears to be a conspiracy in the media, in this one big media organisation. And then the big reveal would come, but actually it's not just that, it's also another institution, the police. What's incredible about this story is it seems to be there's a triangle of the media, the Murdoch Empire, there's the police, and then there's politics and the David Cameron, Number 10, and Andy Coulson. And so the, that would be seen as... The, probably the publisher will say, you know, save that for the second book. That's good enough for the sequel. You've done enough for this first story, and we've crammed all this action and drama into two weeks. It's very intense. Well, we'll come to the politics uh, in, in a bit, but Jane Masterson, you, you were there, along with, uh, with Nick, at the uh, Select Committee hearing this week, which was the kind of, you know, the apex of, 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 of all this. And, um, I mean, that, that was a moment, wasn't it? Where, to, ha- to have Rupert Absolutely. Murdoch in front of a British... Uh, I mean, well, it started because we were queuing for four hours to get into this uh, place. The atmosphere was febrile, wasn't it? I mean, it, it, you know, you really felt this sort of great moment. And I think, um, to Johnny's point, this, the, the, the way that this story is not just about media um, or the police or politics, but combines all of them, I think means that where for two years... All of our rivals, but most people in the street would talk about it being a more media story. You know, only this sort of small little group of really, really people that are obsessed with the media in the Guardian and the BBC. Um, it, it's so obviously not that story, and I think it's touched everybody. You know, people in the street, everybody, even people actually who say to me, "I don't read newspapers, but Rupert Murdoch, this is amazing." Um, and you felt that yesterday. It was an incredible. Event, so, I mean, let's let's start with that then. Let's let's pick apart a bit what because that's the you know that's been the big story this week. Um, Ru- Rupert Murdoch in front of the committee. Um, how did you assess how he did? Well, I felt uh, slightly differently to lots of other commentators sitting in that room. I felt the I, I, I didn't buy the shtick of him being the sort of wizened old man that 
forgotten everything. I mean, he, he obviously is 80 and he has forgotten quite a lot of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, he can't remember the name of the head of legal that they're now trying to blame for most of what's going on. Um, but, but I also think that he was sort of actually engaging so, with the questions. So he was sort of thinking about it and then saying... No, I'm not going to answer that. I don't so, know. So, so, so you don't think you know, <coughs> Team Murdoch, all those people who, who were coaching him before? Oh, that completely. Wasn't... No, I think he just hadn't listened to that, whereas James had not only listened to them, written it down, and then put the little imprint into his, uh, into his mind and was just spewing it out. So he wasn't... It didn't matter what questions you asked. It was sort of prod a button and out would come the answer <laughs> that he had uh, you know, earlier prepared. So I felt he wasn't engaging in the same way, whereas Rupert at least was trying to engage. However, his evidence was full of holes. I mean, it was full of holes. You know, oh, I can't really remember why it was that. And you know what? It's such a tiny part of my empire. I'm, I'm busy with, you know, the rest of the world. It just, just didn't tally. Alan, you've, uh, I mean, you've been in, uh, 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 you have as well, Nick, in, 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 in front of these committees. So you've seen it from both sides. What, do you, what, what did you make of, of, of what Murdoch said? Um, do, you, do you think that it was credible? Did, did he come across as someone, someone believable? Um, or, or, or do you think that in the latter years of, it, of his career he has become more, uh, more and more detached with what was going on and, and, um, and, and this all just happened and he didn't know about it? Well, I thought, I thought it was... I mean, the, the, the picture you got of, of this, this was a tiny little bit of his empire. Um, 1%. And 1%. And... But it, it, it was incredible to me that all these astonishing things have been going on and nobody had told him anything. I mean, if that, if that is true, then, then the shareholders ought to get rid of him immediately because it, it implies that he's completely lost control of the organisation and that no-one's telling him anything. Um, because the, these, if this wasn't on his radar, then, then the people who, who were paid to put it on his radar should be out, i.e. his son... He wasn't very impressed. I thought his I thought his apology was sincere, but he, but he wasn't very impressive. And and James, um, there, there were bits of James's evidence that were incredible to me. So, I mean, I, you know, the, the the bit about the, the Gordon Taylor settlement, where he, he couldn't remember why why they you know. well the, all his sums didn't make sense. You know, why they paid out this enormous sum didn't make sense. And then uh, he tried to pretend that it, we, we knew all about this anyway. But, but the, the central fact was that this was a, that this revealed more reports. It wasn't just Clive Goodman. And then somebody said, "But did you see the, the, the crucial emails that Nick, Nick revealed to the Commons Committee two years ago?" And he said, "No." So wh- why why was he signing a check for this vast sum of money? If um, so, none of that made sense to me. No, he, was, he was stuck in a cleft stick because. The reason that uh, they settled that case with uh, Gordon Taylor was that the judge who was overseeing the, the suing by Gordon Taylor of the News of the World had ordered the police to disclose any material evidence that they were sitting on. And in amongst what they disclosed was this lethal email sent by a junior reporter to Glenn Malcair, the private investigator, for the attention of the News of the World's chief reporter, Neville Thurlbeck, and containing 35 transcribed voicemail messages. So that shows you that the news of the world were behind the interception, precisely what they had been denying. So the reason they're settling this case and paying out hundreds of thousands of pounds in costs and damages is because of that piece of evidence. But if he admits that he had that piece of evidence at that time, 
then he should have handed it to the police and he should have come back to Parliament and the Press Complaints Commission and the public and said everything we've told you in the past was untrue. It was ridiculous, just incredible. Completely circular logic. So he said we, we, we got great satisfaction from the fact that we got a clean bill of health from the police and from the yeah. PCC. But the P- they, they had lied to the PCC, yes. the PCC and the police. So, yeah, no, you know, so they tell lies to the PCC. Yeah. The PCC then come out with this white Welsh report, and then they say, oh, look, the PCC supported us. That means yeah. we must be right. I mean, so, yeah. I mean, all this logic will fall apart once they... Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so, very... It wasn't very forensic. No, so I, I, I thought it was, this was a not a spontaneous event. These are two people who run a global corporation who are very, very scared that great chunks are falling off the corporation. They're in an enormous amount of trouble. And when they came into the room, we were all sitting there nervously waiting for the world's most powerful man to come in. And they suddenly appeared in the corner of the room, these two guys in their grey suits, with these other characters around them. And they're, they're, they're the, the, the players here, consigliere, the advisors. And these are very highly paid lawyers and PR people and consultants and wizards. Well, there's four been... former assistant secretaries of state. Okay, and, and they, they've yeah. been working on this thing for days. They've pulled apart... All of the evidence that could trouble them. Okay, what's our line on this? What's our line on that? James, this is your line on this. And, and, and Rupert, here's the PR line. This is tomorrow's headline. The most humble day of your life. Say it again, Rupert. The most humble day of your life. <laughs> cool. And it works. That's the headline the next day. These are PR people. They fix the news. And, and, the, and the pie. So you've got yeah. humble pie. That was an accident. But Rupert says the line, but he never wrote it. It's, yeah. it's like when Blair says, ah, oh, the people's princess. It's Campbell's line. And he just... That, it. that moment when um, <coughs> Sanders said, uh, have you heard of the phrase willful blindness? And there was this utterly telling silence because their evidence was so full of holes. And willful blindness, you know, two but men and two senior directors yeah. went to prison but it was a revealing at moment then Because James Murdoch, who until then had been the sort of corporate graduate who'd swallowed the Harvard Business School practiced. manual, you know, and was able to regurgitate it at will, he sort of slightly uh, blanked the phrase. But River Murdoch, who yeah. until that moment, you know, they'd had this routine of sort of good cop, doddery cop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at that moment, River Murdoch showed that he was still sharp Absolutely. as a tap because he zeroed in, he knew the legal the, significance, the and he said, Absolutely, I know what willful blindness <laughs> means, and we weren't guilty of it. On the record, it. everyone, you're, you're recording me, we didn't do that. Yes, and he, that showed to me that the... Absolutely, his, the tone of his voice changed. Yes. You know, he wasn't, he was, he wasn't going, just a moment, I'm, this is, I'm so humble. He literally went, no, we didn't do that. And that's why I think the, the way he acted in the beginning of the hearing, especially under was question from Tom Watson, was probably an act. And uh, that, that was quite John, striking itself. Johnny, how did you assess the performance of the, of, of the MPs themselves? Because th- this was their big moment. And, and th- 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 it was, um, they were a mixed bunch, weren't they? You're being very kind. Now let's begin. Let's begin with the. Let's begin with the positive, and there is a positive, which is that they did it at all, and that they've finally found that they have some strength, and Parliament is actually asserting itself, and they've been doing that throughout this whole incredible fortnight, uh, with Ed Miliband leading in uh, uh, in, in the Commons, and also bringing together that the motion that was in the end unanimous. So that's really important to say that. And having the gall to summon Ruth Murdoch, never done it before, forty years only media in this country, and they called him before them. That's really positive. I thought Tom Watson's questioning. Uh, and his whole conduct throughout this whole story deserves huge admiration. Uh, he knew that you have to just ask short, precise, focused questions uh, that do not invite speeches, that invite answers. The others, uh, with a couple of exceptions, I thought Louise Mench was quite sharp, and there was um, Paul, uh, Paul Farrelly as a former journalist was good. But mainly what you felt was lacking was either, and these are two groups of people who are normally despised, 
either lawyers or journalists. You want Fort Farrell is the exception. You wanted people there who know how to ask a question, which doesn't just enable James Murdoch in particular to run out the clock and just talk, which well, is what he wanted well, to well, do. And hope people who hopefully know what the answer is, because you and then follow up. Yes, exactly. And the other thing they didn't do, which they really got to learn to do, is to act as a team. So they've got to say, if you don't get an answer to that, I'll put aside my pre-prepared yeah, grandstanding absolutely. questions and I'll follow up what you did. Yeah. And in the end, you had a th- situation earlier on in the day where there'd been a huge uh, sort of hint left out by Paul Stevenson, actually, the Met, who'd said, a senior official in mm. number 10 told us not to give this briefing. No one in the room said, who? Uh, Which is what any journalist would have done. Alan, the one thing that they did find out, though, wasn't they, was this, cru- didn't they, was this crucial question of, were our News International still paying Glenn, Glenn Mulcair? And they managed to weedle that out of James Murdoch. Yeah, well, I mean, um, I mean, there were several moments when I... I was sort of throwing bananas at the TV screen in sort of bananas. frustration. <laughs> well, I was eating a banana at the time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, what, was, what was James Murdoch's answer to that? When I, uh, he said, so oh, I was so shocked and surprised. I was shocked and surprised. Well, if you'd read The Guardian, um, <laughs> we'd been pointing out that, that the suspicions, or, or which were hardening into fact, the fact that Malcare was on the payroll. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was there is... The person who knows the whole truth of this is Glenn Malcair. Um, and so the, probably the most sensible thing for News International to have done in 2009 would be to ring him up and say, look, you know all this, why don't you come in and tell us? Uh, but you still had Rebecca Wade um, stroke Brooks last night saying, there's this awful phrase, we have no visibility on, on Malcair. The police are not giving us anything, so we, we don't know what he's going to say. At the same time, they're paying his legal fees in order to resist the court actions uh, in order to get him it's to tell all. It's more specific than that, Alan, is that in November, the High Court said that Glenn Malcair must answer questions that were being put by the public figures who were suing. And these are specifically questions about who at the News of the World was organising all this. And Glenn Malcair is appealing against that, going to the Court of Appeal, paid for by News International, precisely so that he doesn't have to answer the questions. So it was a very specific gagging strategy by News International. And you mustn't fall into believing the PR. News International, from the outset, have had a strategy of absolute denial of anything other than something that is proved beyond doubt in the public domain. And if you prove something, they then move the line back and carry on denying everything else. And they are still doing it. And some of it's very clever. A few months ago, you know, they did a big fanfare and say, OK, 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 we admit liability in all these civil actions where the public figures are suing. That sounds very open. We admit liability. But what that enables them to do is to go out and settle the cases quite cheaply. Instead of having to buy people's silence out of court, they can say, OK, we admit liability. Here's some money. That means your case is settled. That means the court won't hear it anymore. And therefore, crucially, all of the evidence which has been obtained from the police and elsewhere won't come into the public domain. That's why they're settling those cases, to, to stop the evidence coming out in a trial. There was another moment toward, towards the end when, when um, you know, all the stuff that Nick's been writing over, over the years... And they're, they're acting as though all this is coming as a total surprise to them. So well, the extraordinary the, thing is, is, you know, is, is for a news organisation, they don't seem to read the papers much, do they? <laughs> um, well, they should at least have a cutting service. Um, but but I mean, when Rebecca Brooks said, was asked about Jonathan Rees, this, this man who was up on the axe murder that we, we couldn't write about, we couldn't name him because, because uh, it was in contempt of court. That was the reason we went to David Cameron to say we can't write about this fully at the moment, but there's a, a, a man who's on a very violent charge Cameron's chief of staff didn't think this was worth mentioning. 
Uh, he'd been in prison. He'd had a seven-year sentence for planting cocaine on a woman, come straight on, back onto the payroll of, of, uh, of Coulson's News of the World. And this was put to Rebecca Brooks last night, and she said, oh, yes, I, I saw that on Panorama. <laughs> uh, in, when was that? April. Well, at least yeah. So she's just cruelly avoiding and so somebody, acknowledging you know, the So this was, had been a total secret that no one could possibly have known uh, about this man. Yeah. Who, did, who so that be... came up a lot in the parliamentary, uh, in the committee with um, the Murdochs as well, when they said, what about Rebecca Brooks and these payments to police? No, I was totally unaware of that. No, she had said it in, a, well, in the, the House of Jane, Commons. Oh. Jane, uh, Jane I mean, Rebecca Brooks's appearance, after all the high drama and fast that came before was was something of a of a postscript. Wasn't I think it? it had to be an anticlimax. After you can't keep that level of um, yeah. <laughs> of pressure up. I think for that time there'd been so much for the Murdochs, and she's obviously improved on her eight year. Um, yes, because because she because she talked about paying police, which was which is again another astonishing thing is why didn't they call the police? Well, that's what. The last but that's what when that question was put by Tom Watson and. Um, and Rupert said, oh, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. And, and, uh, and anyway, when she did it, she immediately apologised. And, uh, and Tom Watts said, well, seven or eight years later. <laughs> and, um, and they had no idea. Well, they, of course, they did have an idea, didn't they? I mean, the, the whole suggestion that she could say this in a parliamentary committee, and they have no idea. What about the what about the moment of fast? Because Jane, you had an absolutely fantastic view. Well, it was high drama. I don't think it was fast. I mean, Nick and I, Nick and I were sitting about eight foot away. There's sort of there's thirteen people in the row. I counted them, and there were four rows of people. And the Rupert and uh, Wendy Murdoch are in the middle of that row. She and was just behind him. The, at the, on the fourth row, a man in a plaid shirt stands up and uh, goes to walk out as a couple of journalists have done and it's as if they're going out to file a story. But when he walks past the last row, past Nick and myself, the entire uh, room sort of realised that something was going to happen. Um, And he got to point-blank range to Rupert Murdoch and suddenly this paper plate and uh, foam appeared and he lodged it in his face at which Wendy Murdoch sort of became the story in a slightly... I mean, you know, it was, she, it was incredible and the whole room erupted, as you can imagine. But she leapt up. She leapt up and actually it was two women, I have to say, as the now women's editor of The Guardian. Um, the council, the, the general council for uh, News Corporation... A woman called Janet Nova, I discovered last night. I'd never seen her before. Was the one, all these men, all these battalions of uh, expensive advisors, sat gobsmacked. (laughs) And uh, Janet Nova jumped up and accosted the pie man. And uh, Wendy Murdoch was, uh, I mean, Nick said... What she did, she grabbed, this plate of foam came loose and she grabbed it and whipped him round the face a couple of times with it. She was really going for it. She, and then she actually went to go round the table mm. to really go for it. And the, uh, and the policeman came to his sort of rescue, really. I mean, she... <laughs> Before we uh, began recording, Nick revealed that he had a slightly... I was going to say that, I thought instinct. it was a bit mean. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether I should have done this, because if this guy walks out, I could see that he was heading for Rupert, so I shouted out, careful. And I don't know what that was a bad thing to do. But anyway, uh, I thought it really annoyed me, actually. This was a really, really stupid bloke. 
And, I mean, lawyers, MPs, journalists have spent years trying to get the most powerful man in the world to be accountable. There he is sitting there. And actually, the person who was questioning was this MP Louise Mensch. She was very sharp, and she was asking good questions. We were coming to a climax. It was important. And A, this idiot disrupted the questioning. Uh, B, he split all the news coverage the next day so that it becomes silly stuff about pies instead of all the issues. And third, within that room, and I think for everybody watching, it tilted all the balance of sympathy Mm. in Rupert's direction. He was a victim. Mm. Anyway, I'll stop ranting. (laughs) (laughs) The result of that, which is really frustrating, is that all the press and the public, obviously, were told to get up and go out. And that's part of the reason why Rebecca got so little coverage. We were were out of the room. We weren't allowed in there anymore. It was was so frustrating. Yeah. I want to move on a bit and talk um, specifically about uh, Parliament and the effect on politics of, of all of this. I mean, many people have said that there's a Shakespearean quality to uh, all, of, all of this, and never mind Banquo, Cameron just can't shake the ghost of Coulson, can he? And, um, Alan, you can't say he wasn't warned, because <laughs> you warned him. He, I mean, I guess that's where the story now moves. You know, I mean, it was very interesting watching Cameron trying to explain why he needed Coulson today, what kind of security checks uh, he went through, uh, and you know, the significance. Uh, I mean, it, it, it just doesn't make sense. You know, the, 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 there were so so many people who warned him, and it, and it was just so obviously a, a reckless, a recklessly dangerous choice. So it'd be really interesting to know who warned him, and what's the significance of the of of, of his of his clearance because he didn't have as high clearance as someone like Alistair Campbell. So was that because some is there a piece of paper somewhere in Whitehall that said I don't think you should be doing this, Prime Minister, because that would be damaging. And but but then that, that I think that recklessness was as evident in the Prime Minister today when he was asked seven times to say whether he had discussed the B Sky B with the d- deal with in the 26 meetings he had with News International people, uh, and he wouldn't deny it. So we can take it that he did discuss it. So I think this just, you begin to get a sense of recklessness in this Prime Minister. He appoints this man despite the huge political risk of doing so. He knows that everyone is going to be um, watching him like a hawk on these News International Conservative government um, uh, links. And yet he goes ahead and he discusses the deal with them. I mean, it, it's sort of... I mean, you wouldn't put that into one of your books, would you? Darling? Over I the mean, top. No, yeah. over the top. I mean, do, you think it's, do you think it's politically... Da- I mean, how politically damaging... We know it's politically damaging for David Cameron. How politically damaging is it? Tory bloggers over the weekend openly discussing uh, who, who might uh, succeed yes. him. I thought that was very striking, that the first talk of life after Cameron and who are the runners and riders did not come from the sort of Guardian Easter sphere, but it came from Tory bloggers who began mm. to see that there was a possibility this crisis could be terminal for him. I, I think um, there's a difference between damaging and sort of fatal. And so for it we're to be damaging f- at the moment. We're right? damaging. For it to be fatal, and this is partly, you know, uh, speculative and, and, and just imaginary, you'd have to prove somehow that he himself was involved in benefiting from, I'm not suggesting he would do hacking, but he would benefit from illegally acquired information in some way. I think that would be the, uh, destroy him. Anything less than that, if it's just a matter of judgment, that he showed poor judgment in hiring this guy, and there's just more and more the kind of things that Alan's just been referring to, he was warned and he didn't, then it goes to his judgment and it's shown to be very, the word Alan uses, it was reckless. Well, and that's damaging. And the more it goes on, the more damaging 
that is for him. But I, to clear, the, you know, people survive poor judgment. I mean, with Tony Blair, people think that the judgment to go to war in Iraq was wrong, but that wouldn't be enough to force him out. It only would have been if he had somehow prosecuted it dishonestly, hence all the fuss about WMD and the dossier. That's the difference. You can, you can make a terribly bad decision and stay in your job as prime minister. It has to have been somehow dishonest uh, and involved you know, deception. If that, that's the threshold, he's obviously terrified. No, I, I think we're expressing it wrong. The, the charge is not bad judgment. The charge is more serious than that. The charge is you hired somebody who was patently unsuitable, not because you have bad judgment, but because above all you understood that if you wanted to gain and keep power, you had to have Murdoch on side. And therefore you had to have Murdoch's man in Downing Street to assist you in this entirely improper and undemocratic alliance with this organisation. So it's about that. It's It's about that exchange of power with Murdoch. It's allowing Murdoch into government. That's what's wrong. So it isn't bad judgment you you failed to assess this man's character accurately. And insofar as Murdoch is now a hugely tainted figure, I think that charge, if we express it in those terms, is really very dangerous. And and where where you get the detail on that is when you... So it's not just about what did he know before he he recruited uh, Coulson. It's what then happened. We're beginning to get some kind of insight into the number of meetings, but we still don't know the detail of how policy is being changed and communicated through that nexus that Coulson creates. Does that not make sense? You're all talking now, Johnny, about uh, how a new politics is, re- is required, new relationships between the, the media and, and the press, and we've all got to have a much less cosy time of it all. Do you think that will happen? Um, I'm tempted to say I can't see huge amounts of change, partly just because the last two comparable crises, and actually I don't think they are fully comparable, but you know the bankers' crisis, everyone thought that we never again are these people going to be allowed to pay themselves these telephone number bonuses, surely the whole system is going to have to be changed, and government won't just fall over itself to do whatever the city requires. Well, we didn't get that change. And the MPs' expense scandal, again, we thought there'd be this huge clear-out and several of the people who named the expense scandal are promptly re-elected in May 2010, and they're just back. So that's what makes me a bit sceptical about it. There'll still be that relationship. I do think what um, Nick has said is right, though, that particularly about News International, that was seen as a wholly, not just legitimate, but the, the crucial uh, player in British media life, there is a taint there now. That, and the, what we can't guess, because we're right in it at the moment, is how big that is and how enduring that is, and how that lingers. Just go to the point Nick made, where the argument becomes, how could you have let this person in? You made this bargain with the devil. That's right. He, the, the, and the, the, I don't know what the answer to this is, but would there not be the defence that he would say, and I, I think this may not resonate with people in the media and certainly not in the sort of Guardian world, but might with the electorate, which is, only now do we know quite how devilish this organisation was because they hacked Millie Dowler. You know, we knew they were very influential and they cut a few corners. They were quite rough, you know, rough and ready, these red tops. We didn't know they were criminal and didn't know they were kind of borderline no. evil. <laughs> that would be the defence that a Cameron could make and that's why I think that's sort of the argument he was running today. There are two different charges against the Murdoch organisation and that's the least significant one. The fact that their journalists were out there breaking the, wa- the law is much less significant than that the Murdoch organisation is there to bully governments. It undermines governments, do you see? So this, this joke that goes around that there's a system where you have one man and one vote, you've probably heard that joke. You have one guy, an Australian who's become an American, he runs the government. I mean, I'm slightly overstating it, but this, that's the, the worry, the abuse of power by that media organisation and by putting the man into Downing Street. That, that's the problem. And Cameron knows all about that because he's seen preceding governments, certainly from Mrs Thatcher onwards, being pushed around by this political mm. bully. I think, so that's not the, news. I think the biggest danger here is 
to Nick's point that if this scandal becomes about the media, and Cameron did it today several times, I thought it was a particularly chilling line where he said, um, for too long we have put on the back burner press regulation. We, and it, this is not just about News International, he said. This is about the BBC, The Independent and The Guardian. We should be talking about the relationship between the media and government. And if it now becomes... And I, and I think the real danger here is that lots of people who aren't part of a sort of you know, a, a media world might think well, maybe that's right. Maybe they're all like that. Maybe they're all a bit corrupt. Maybe they just do these bad things, these awful journalists. And that's the huge danger here, because I think if the public doesn't get behind what Nick was just saying, that this was about abuse of power by the most powerful media owner and his links into the heart of government, and this isn't just about press regulation and it isn't just about journalists behaving badly, then I think, to Johnny's point, we will have another banking situation where nothing will change. Alan, this inquiry has, this inquiry has been set up now and the members of the panel have been announced. Judge Leveson is going to head it. And it's going to, it is going to, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be a big discussion about, about media ethics and press, press regulation, isn't it? And it's going to end. It may even end. Cameron said it wouldn't, but it may even end with some sort of statutory oversight of, um, of, of the press. And yeah, would, I, would that be a bad thing? That would be a bad thing, and I, I don't think that will... I, 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 don't, I can't believe that will happen, so uh, let, let's hope not. I, I had a, a quick glass of water this afternoon with Harold Evans, who, who was in the building. Um, I don't know why he was in the building, but there he suddenly was. He was there. He was in the room. Yeah, I know he was there yesterday, but he's, he suddenly turned up. He's, he was there at the moment when they were all... Um, uh, getting the paper ready on the, on, on the wall and so I said come and have a quick um, uh, cup of tea um, and I, I just said tell me, tell me your reaction you know, what, what, what do you make of all this and he was, he was very emotional he, he just said I think this is he said I just this is just such a wonderful moment it's a wonderful moment in British public life it's a wonderful moment in journalism because it's going to be the cleansing of journalism and he said, "What I really love about it is that it it has the, the cleansing of this the clearest cleansing moment has been achieved through journalism. Mm-hmm. It's been achieved through great investigative journalism, uh, and so that's what we now have to fight for. You know, that, that's and you know, and that's essentially what we've been saying for the last two years that you have to make a, you have to go back to this concept of the public interest, and you have to be sensible. You have to be serious about that, and you can't say that the public interest is about shagging footballers." Because no one's going to believe that any longer. You know, all that fooey about super injunctions, you know, and that, all that hot air which was being got up by the sun. And you, we've got to be serious about the public interest because otherwise the, the, the journalism is going to be seriously under threat. But um, are you fearful about what, what may come out of the um, public inquiry or do you think it's a good opportunity and actually um, you know, we'll get a better system of regulation? We need a better system of regulation. Well, we do need a better system of regulation because the Press Complaints Commission has been proved to be not up to the task. Um, sadly, and you know, again, uh, okay, I'll say we, we told you so. Um, you know, we, we, we can't go back and look You're at allowed the Guardian, to say that. I go back and look at the Guardian editorials over the last two years. You know, we, and, you know, I've again had repeated meetings with the PCC and say, unless you do something about this, it's going to be really bad for the PCC. In fact, it could be completely destructive of the Press Complaints Commission. So, I'm afraid the, 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 the regulatory framework that we have at the moment has been shown not to work. But we, you know, Jane's exactly right. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and, and go, go back. You know, when you talk about 
licensing of the press. A, we haven't had that in this country since the late 17th century. Johnny, you take the long view. You take the long view. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and B, you know, how on earth, you know, what, what, what is Guido Fawkes and what's the Huffington Post? What's a blagger? So, I mean, but I think like, the state, state licensing is, is something we've got to avoid. But, Jane, um, um, one of the things that does seem to be happening is that, that, that never mind the baby being thrown out with the bathwater, it's the kitchen sink that's being thrown in to, 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 the, to, to mix a... To mix a <laughs> Brilliantly done. <laughs> uh, Although I'm really confused now. To the remit of the inquiry, because uh, Guido Fawkes has been thrown in today, so social, me- social media is going to be investigated. He just sort of said social media and then did there anything else. And but, I, mean, it, it, I mean, it could be that, that, that every, everything that anyone is mildly pissed off about gets thrown into the remit of this inquiry and it drags on for years Although and maybe, years. Uh, yeah, the dragging on for years and years, I think, is a... Mm. Is a given. But, um, you know, I, I think to Alan's point, the regulation of the press it has failed. I mean, the PCC, you know, it absolutely failed to do anything. It, it, isn't, it isn't self-regulation, actually, and it's a, it's a sort of tragedy that it's being seen as, a, um, as an example of self-regulation not working. You know, there was no regulation. It had no powers. It did nothing. Um, but I think it has to look at... We are in a new world now, and, and the world of social media, how do you regulate a world in which the definition of newspaper, television, the internet, they're very, they, they are now combining in a way that you know, we've foreseen for years, but it really is happening now. That is interesting. It does mean that judicial inquiry could be enormous, but you know, that something has to come out of this that means there is a better regulation. And I don't think, you know, it shouldn't be state regulation, but there are models that are better than the one that we currently have. We cannot have a system where you know, they have no powers and there's a sort of code committee that seem to meet every now and again and say, it's all fine, really. I think the tougher thing in there, though, is this looking at cross-media ownership. And uh, I don't think that was initially going to be in the terms of reference designs. I think Ed Miliband and perhaps Nick Clegg pushed for that. That, that in a way, is a you know, very clear cut beyond just sort of committees looking at what stories yeah. are written. You just say there is a limit how much you can own. Mm-hmm. And other countries, other democracies have that. And partly we've got ourselves, Britain, into this pickle because we didn't, and we allowed one owner, Murdoch, mm. to own this hugely disproportionate share. But I do have the worry, the long grass worry, about this inquiry. Mm. And it's a worry I have also about how the story plays out, because I think, it goes back to the politics a bit, if you're in number 10, the one thing you want this to be is really long and ultimately very kind of anorak story. You want it to become that only a few people can f- remember all the details of it, and it goes on for months and months and months, because then the, the heat drains out yeah. of it, and they, that's what it's not been this last two weeks. Yeah. The one thing that I I think really has to be explored is this issue of plurality and you know if one thing is evident now it's why this B sky B, B deal should never have been allowed um, and people people dismissed this three months ago and they said this is ridiculous but I just want to describe the situation that's been revealed because what 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 what, what how Murdoch has operated is, and he does this in every territory he's in. So he has a posh paper, like the Times or the Wall Street Journal or the, the Australian. And then he has a really grubby paper. Uh, and then he has a broadcasting operation which buys up all the rights, all the sports rights and all the film rights. Uh, uh, and so he has, this, he has business needs, which are mainly to do with the broadcasting operation because the newspapers all lose money. And he has this sort of criminal network as well. And then he, he has the posh paper, which gets him respectability. So in the United States, it's Fox News, Wall Street yeah. Journal, and Philip Post. Yeah. Fill in the gaps. Uh, and what that creates is two things. One, one is there, is there is a fear 
that, well, it creates two or three things. One is an absolute need to do business with this man, either politically or in, or in business or sporting or, or movie terms. It creates a fear that if you rub this man up the wrong way or this organization, bad things will happen to you. Uh, and then the final bit is that this man has needs. Uh, so you have David Cameron who, who believes it's a bad man to fall out with and, and that he needs him in order to get elected. And Rupert Murdoch needs a green light to the regulatory mechanism that's going to allow his guy deal to go through. And that's all you need. It's a, there's nothing... I've just described the situation. So I'm not saying that's corrupt. And if you had, if you had News International people, they would all, each bit of that puzzle would say, no, no, Rupert Murdoch's never told me to write this editorial. Uh, this is all a guarding conspiracy theory. But the fact, all the facts, as I've described, are true. Um, and that, that, that is, so you don't have to have a conversation. David Cameron and Rupert Murdoch don't have to have a conversation. They, they both understand what each other needs. Uh, and that is the situation that has been built up in this country, in, in which lots of people were frightened of this organization. And that's why this inquiry needs to look at how we ever prevent that happening again. Okay. Um, we talked about, we touched on the situation in America there. Uh, I'd like to turn to America for the last, last part of the show to look at how the week's events have played out there. The storm clouds across the Atlantic are turning darker by the day. I talked to uh, Sarah Ellison, who's the uh, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, one of the few American journalists to have followed the story right from the beginning. Um, I asked her how the Murdoch's turn at the select committee had played out in the U.S. What's interesting is that in the United States, almost every news channel had turned over um, all of their coverage in the morning for live coverage of this parliamentary hearing, which is never happened as far as I can remember. And and in, I was hopping into the subway yesterday morning and the free paper that they handed me as I was walking in had this plastered on the, on the cover. So it's definitely become a story um, that's very much in, in people's minds in this country in the way that UK stories just normally don't don't uh, do. No, absolutely. And, well, I, and, and it's very exciting that, that, that you should see all our Westminster machinations. Um, what did, <laughs> um, what did, how did it go down? I mean, what's been the reaction? The stock price, of course, has gone up, which, uh, which has been interpreted, interpreted in different ways. Well, I think that uh, the stock price went up partly because there was so much buildup to this appearance. No one really knew exactly what to expect. And you have to say that this wasn't the worst outcome that one could have expected. In fact, they came out of it uh, somewhat unscathed because they, it, was, it was a time where being 80 and forgetful came in quite handy because from a legal perspective, there was really nothing um, that they admitted. They certainly didn't admit any knowledge of what was going on. And so I think that shareholders were sort of happy to see and relieved to see um, that there was no great calamity that happened on on the floor of the the meeting other than the of course the infamous pie incident um but i think that so so my 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 interpretation um of that is that that it was it was sort of a sigh of relief that there wasn't any worse news that came out there wasn't any kind of smoking gun that was revealed um during that during that hearing so, uh, so where does it go now then? Is it more of a slow burn, do you think? Because uh, the, the, the questions are kind of, um, there are long-term questions surely over whether James Murdoch can possibly 
take over the company now because you know fine he didn't he didn't commit any huge snafus at the at, uh, in front of the select committee but what he did show it, what the, the the effect of saying nothing suggests that he's a man not in control of the, of his own company well, I think that uh, the the hearing didn't do anything for their their future credibility, and I mean, there people were joking that before the parliamentary hearing, the question was who knew what when, and the question afterwards was nobody, who didn't know. Nobody anything knew anything ever. anytime. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, of course, it's it's a it's sort of an embarrassment to say we knew nothing of what was going on. At all, and no one, no one felt necessary to tell us um, that there was this kind of criminal activity. Of course, that's that's a little incredible, given that James was paying for something when he was paying for the um, the settlements early on in this whole process. I think that I suppose it is more of a slow burn. I mean, there's clearly reputational damage that is that's been done, um, grave reputational damage. The one thing that is happening here that, of course, everyone is watching in this country is the 9-11 victims and whether or not there's going to be any evidence that emerges about the phones being hacked of 9-11 victims. The families um, of those victims, their lawyer has been speaking out publicly, and, and that's just such a such a nuclear issue in this country that I think if anything would emerge there, um, it would certainly revive the story and it would be devastating for Murdoch here. I think at that point you could see um, his television licenses at risk and you could see advertisers boycotting. So far there isn't quite the emotional reaction in this country that there has been in the UK because it hasn't hit home quite the way it has there with with things like Millie Dowler. Yeah, and and if that did happen, I I suppose what what you would see is what we're not seeing at the moment, which is any kind of desire amongst the political class to go after Murdoch. Yeah, you would definitely see people. I mean, 9-11 is is political catnip for people here. So um, you would certainly see more of a political will to go after him um, if that were the case. What's interesting is that on Fox, um, on every other network, there is there is coverage of what this means and whether Murdoch can survive. And on Fox and also in the Wall Street Journal, this has been um, portrayed largely as Murdoch's enemies coming after him, which is something that for people in the UK must be like watching a rerun because, of course, that was the coverage for the past two years that now I think has been been dropped a bit in the UK um, now that there's so much of what the coverage has been has been proven true. Um, but in the US now, people are sort of recycling that argument that that all the attention and all the coverage about Murdoch is unfair and it's only coming from people like the New York Times and ProPublica. Um, of course, The Guardian gets thrown in there. But I think that um, that is definitely, in the Murdoch outlets, the, the angle of the story. Sarah Ellison there on the line from New York, contributing editor uh, at Vanity Fair magazine. I want to pick up with you, um, Johnny Friedland, what uh, she was saying about the 9-11 victims. Do you think, I mean, do you get a sense that, that there is any traction in, uh, in that? Uh, I mean, if there was anything to that story, I mean, they'd yes. be finished. Yeah, I mean, she used the American expression catnip, but it is sacred. Uh, 9-11 and to violate that sort of sanctity around the victims of 9-11 would would just turn Murdoch into a collective public enemy number one, a hate figure Uh, and that would be I think almost I mean Fox News would stay outside that but it would almost be consensual so it is dynamite but you know it is as yet unproven. How does it play out um, in America Jane? You you, you were the Guardian's business correspondent in in New York Uh, 9-11 notwithstanding what are the 
corporate pitfalls in, uh, for News Corporation in America? Oh, I think, I mean, the, this is the thing they've been most afraid of, isn't it? The, the reason why, but they hit that hideous sort of um, moment when they weren't going to come to, in front of the select committee and then they changed their mind six hours later. The, you know, the, there's real pressure from investors. I mean, the share price obviously had taken a battering over the past um, 10 days, really, once you know, the News of the World um, closed and they revealed uh, how serious it was. Um, I think there's this the real sense of questions being asked about um, the dynastic ambitions of Rupert Murdoch, who runs a $50 billion company um, as if it's a family firm. Um, you know, there are independent directors and uh, lots of uh, investors um, investing pension fund money who feel that perhaps there are questions to be asked. And something like this comes along, it's fine when Murdoch is making lots of money and he founded the company and he, he made it bigger... And actually, when it all goes wrong, they start going, the corporate governance in this company really doesn't, doesn't fit. Um, let's take some questions. Uh, we've got some time. Um, will you put your hands up? And uh, uh, I'm sure you've all got much better questions than mine were. Uh, in, the, in the middle, let's just wait for the um, microphone to come with you. Uh, to you, that would be great. Hi, I'm, I'm Julia Hines. I, um, I was interested in what Nick said about... Um, News of the World wanting to have a placeman within Downing Street. And, and I wondered whether he had any comments on, on David Cameron's response today when he was asked about the, the Daily Mail story about Guto Harry being vetoed by Rebecca Brooks. And he said Rebecca Brooks specifically denied that and he didn't make any comment himself. Uh, well, I think this is all part of that wider picture of the Murdoch organisation pushing government around. And this seems to be happening on, on quite a lot of different levels. So it, it, I think what Alan was just talking about five minutes ago is where you have media policy, like can the regulator allow us to buy all of B Sky B? They're in there pushing and shoving. Where there are wider issues, like, for example, should we join the euro? Murdoch's voice is louder, louder, louder than any other voice in the country, uh, influencing government policy in a big way. And then on really quite small things, like you hear of direct interventions with prime ministers in government reshuffles. We want this guy in and we want that guy out. That level of interference. And so then the question of whether it should be Gazahari, who's the spokesman, or uh, Andy Coulson, they'll interfere there in order to maintain their influence. I think it's, it's awful that it's gone on. And, and that's really what the story about it isn't about journalists behaving badly. It's about the way the power elite functions. That's what makes it important. Uh, in the middle, you had, yes, yeah, that gentleman there. Oh, no, it wasn't a gentleman, it was a lady, sorry. <laughs> that's so David Dimbleby, isn't it? <laughs> sorry, gentleman, oh, no, the lady in well, there. Yeah. That's all right. Uh, good evening, I'm Karuna Kumar, I'm a journalist. Uh, my question to you is, to what extent do you think this scandal resonates with the Watergate scandal, considering that Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein themselves sought the approval of... Uh, the then executive editor, um, Bradley. And do you think uh, this would have as profound an effect on the future of British journalism as Watergate did for American journalism? Uh, Alan, do you think it's a... You're the expert on Watergate. Well, I'm a Watergate nerd. It's quite true. I mean, the... the, uh, 
That is setting the bar very, very high. You know, is it as, as big as Watergate? And that obviously toppled the most powerful elected figure in the world. So it sets the bar extremely high. Um, but Carl Bernstein wrote, wrote a piece in, 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 um, uh, in Newsweek this week, which was headlined. Saying this is Britain's Watergate. Yes. Uh, and in a way, Britain is even to underestimate it because it is an international media empire, as Nick has been saying. I mean, the... the but the parallel, if you're, you know, if you, if you, uh, being very sort of literal about it, would be if, um, as I think I said, sort of hinted at before, that if you could show that Cameron had somehow benefited from illegally gained information, that is, after all, what did for Nixon, uh, and instead of it being the so-called plumbers in the White House, G. Gordon, Liddy, and all those people, it was actually News International reporters who were hacking into Labour figures and funneling this information. That's not been even hinted at, let alone proven, but that, was, that, that would make it map onto Watergate. But if, you take, if you're less literal about it and say, why was Watergate significant? Because it revealed how this particular administration was functioning, but also in a way uh, it said larger things about political power and things therefore changed. In some ways, then the comparison becomes less um, uh, sort of hyperbolic because then in, in that case you're saying about Rupert Murdoch that the stone has been lifted and people have seen how this operation works and there will be a, a desire anyway to do things differently. American journalism really did change afterwards and I'm just not so sure that British journalism will is, is as ready to change as that. Stone lifted or curtain pulled back. It was a bit Wizard of Oz, wasn't it, uh, this week I thought. Um, uh, right at the back. Um, you've spoken quite extensively about the implications for the media and the government. Um, obviously the police are implicated in all this as well and I was wondering what your opinion on what changes will or won't happen there are. Um, Alan, well, I know Nick, but, but I mean, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll come to you in a second. But, but Alan, Alan, sorry, you've, um, I mean, you, you've got opinions about this as, as well. It was extraordinary that uh, this has forced out the, the, you know, the two top guys at, at the Met. And, mm. and then we learned that, that, <coughs> that, that, need, that the Met press office employs, you know, a quarter of its staff used to work for News International. So the, the, there are really well, big questions <coughs> there. That, that picture I described earlier of, of what I, you know, what I, what I think is an ac- accurate description of the country's, of the company's position in this country. I think the, the the other bit that was really disturbing was that I think they felt they had immunity, so they had, they felt they had immunity from the regulator, they felt they had immunity from the police, and they felt that they felt they had immunity from other papers. I mean that, that that's why it was such an extraordinary. Uh, it, they felt untouchable, I think, and 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 the more the behaviour of the police. And as, as Matt was saying, that, you know, the fact that cork, nearly a quarter of the press bureau is, is employed by ex-NI people, all these dinners between Sir Paul Stevenson and, and, and Neil Wallace, and, and uh, it's the same thing. It's all these social contacts and dinners that is mirrored in, 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 in Parliament. And the police came and visited you? And, and yeah, they came, you know, they, Paul Stevenson came and, and saw me and, and tried to uh, warn me off Nick. And then, I mean, actually, to do Paul Stevenson's credit, in his evidence yesterday, he said, I, I went to see The Guardian, and he said, it's perfectly true, I did try and, uh, and, and uh, discredit Nick Davis's reporting, and Alan Rusbridge had disregarded what I said. Uh, and then I complained, and I suggested that he talk to John Yates, and John Yates came in and slagged Nick off and said that he was mad and that it was all conspiracy theory and it was all inaccurate. Uh, and Paul Stevenson, to his credit, said, and thank God the Guardian dis- did disregard what I said um, because they got to the truth of this and we ought to be thankful for them. Um, so, you know, um, but, I, but as, as, a, as a 
mirror up to what the police were doing. You know, it, it is a mystery to me why they behaved in the way that they did. Uh, and I, I think they, they will have a sober reckoning. Though we think, don't we, that the, the current inquiry is, is a thorough one. The current inquiry. Ah, the new inquiry that was yeah. set up in January, I would say, is, is thorough and honest and uh, aggressive in, in a good sense. But, but the role of the police in this, is it's, it's the same shape as the role of government, that they're confronted with this extremely powerful organisation and they say to themselves, we can't do our job properly unless we accommodate this Murdoch organisation. And the, the vivid example of that is that when they start investigating the phone hacking that's reported by Buckingham Palace... Within four or five months, they came across evidence that this was involved a vast number of offences against a massive number of celebrities. And then they made a decision to put it away, not to investigate it. And they say, and I think they're probably telling the truth, well, part of our thinking was that we, we had more important jobs to do. There was this plot to blow up aeroplanes over the Atlantic, and the same officers who were working on that were being diverted into this. We needed terrorism to, people. Yeah, yeah. But, so, so there was a question of resources. But beyond that, senior officers who were there in Scotland Yard at the time say there was a conscious and deliberate decision to back off that inquiry because they didn't want to get into trouble with this very powerful organisation, which means that they were allowed to break the law and the police weren't going to enforce it against them. So that, that's central to this picture. Very worrying. Before we go, um, I, mean, I, hint, I hinted at the start that this is a, a Hollywood blockbuster in the making. I suppose we should have a quick run, run around the cast list for hacking the movie. Um, if he wasn't dead, I, 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 love this guy. I'd say... <laughs> I'd say Paul, Paul Newman for, uh, uh, for Nick he Davis. But <laughs> I said if he wasn't it. Or, um, or John Slattery, you know, the, the silver fox from Madeline. What, uh, uh, what, what, I think that would be quite good. Um, Jane, Jane who, who are your top? I'm not going to say who I think for the people who might be in it, obviously, here. Although I do think for the Murdochs, you know they have the Star Wars fetish with the huge Darth Vader outside um, James's office. They I love. didn't know that. Oh, you do know that? I've been lots of interviews written by me um, but they, I love the idea of whoever played the Emperor Palpatine being Rupert and sort of you know appearing in the Senate like a sort of nice shiny Senate and then with the dark hood it becomes it's a wizened old crow and then Mark Hamill the sort of Luke Skywalker who now looks quite sort of seedy could be James it's just perfect. Johnny? Alan's well, I, looking completely confused. <laughs> Others, of course, who don't uh, fear for their jobs have described that uh, Daniel Radcliffe as the natural valley. <laughs> I, of course, wouldn't offer that one. Um, I think Jack Black is surely a natural for Tom Watson, MP. Yes. I think um, I like that idea. Um, I think... Danny DeVito for John Burko as speaker. Um, I think there's, a, you know, you can... And then, well, this is not original at all, but it's a bit of sort of... It's quite avant-garde casting, cross-gender casting. So Rebecca Brooks has to be Mick Hucknall. I oh, yeah. <laughs> Very obvious. I, 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 I thought to, Joaquin for Glenn Mulcair or something. Yes, Philip Seymour Hoffman for Glenn Mulcair. Mm-hmm. Yes? Who do you think should play you, Alan, really? I'm not, I'm not going to play this game. I, <laughs> I was so wounded earlier in the week. There was, there was a headline that popped up on Google Alerts that, that asked the question, is Alan Rusbridger the new Ben Bradley? And that's, you know, who, who could object to that question? So I, was, yeah. so I started reading it, and it went down, and it said uh, that the thing is he's, he's, he's completely atypical in, in casting terms, because whereas Ben Bradley was played by Jason Robards, he said, Alan Rusbridger looks like Harry Potter's lonely uncle. <laughs> 
<laughs> Harry Potter, but his lonely uncle. <laughs> Pedophiles. <laughs> Uh, uh, thank you, thank you very much. Enormous thanks to everyone on the panel: Alan Rusbridger, Nick Davis, Jonathan Friedland, and Jay Martinson. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much to you, uh, all of you, for uh, coming and being part of our audience. Keep up to date with everything about this story on guardian.co.uk. And you might like to buy a copy of the paper as well. Uh, Media Talk is produced by Ben Green, and I'm Matt Wells. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.